All right, guys, we did it. Da, 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 1,000 downloads already for Clear Choices. Couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much for your support and all your positive feedback. Please continue to share, like, post, rate, and do everything you can to help get the Clear Choices message out there. Thank you guys so much. Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner. And it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Welcome to Clear Choices. This is Rob Eigner, and I have a fascinating guest for us today. I'm going to be speaking with Bill Cohen. Bill is a caregiving support consultant, specifically focused on people in the aging community, people with dementia and Alzheimer's, etc., And he comes to this role in his life and this time in his life in a very kind of circuitous route. He's originally from New England, but he's now lived in Oregon for over 30 years with his wife, Lori, and several pets. But he's done a lot in his life. He's been a manager, a financial advisor, a compliance inspector, a mentor, a volunteer. He's worked for the DMV, that place that we all love to go. But the common thread for Bill has been that he's always been helping people. His life goal and his milestones have been you know, delivering value for other people. He's even been one to administer several memorable weddings for people close to him in his life. But what brought him to this significant place where he's now a caregiving support consultant is that his own mother, Sheila, lost her home due to Hurricane Katrina. Then her health and ultimately her life were destroyed by the Alzheimer's disease. My grandmother, too, had Alzheimer's. And Bill, this entire time, was Sheila's primary caregiver. And that experience of taking care of his mother gave him an opportunity to really learn a lot about this process and this difficult challenge that so many families are going through. And so he got his CSA, a senior certified advisor designation, and he's been providing help to families managing this difficult journey with their family members for many years now. He speaks to many organizations, facilitates meetings, and does one-on-one consulting. Now, before we hear from Bill, I want to share some really significant data points so you, the listener, understand what a significant component this is of the American demographic. So, Right now, the average U.S. life expectancy has increased from 68 years life expectancy in 1950 to now almost 79 years of age. There's always been a major gender gap in terms of life expectancy. So in the 1990s, there was a seven-year gap, women outliving men. And now, actually in 2017, this gap has narrowed to five years. So the age of women, average age is 81.1, and the men are now living to an average age of 76.1. Sadly, there are many Americans that are experiencing poverty in their retirement. The poverty rate for Americans 65 and older has dropped 
but it's still at 9% right now. So that means one out of 10 retirees are experiencing full-on poverty. Another couple data points that I think are really interesting. The aging of the baby boom generation could fuel more than a 50% increase, 50% increase in the number of Americans ages 65 and older requiring nursing home care. So that's just a major onslaught of older people who are not necessarily contributing as much in the workforce potentially and are needing some kind of care. Last stat that I'll give, and then uh, I'll introduce uh, our amazing guest today. Demand for elder care will also be driven by a steep rise in the number of Americans living with Alzheimer's, which could be more than double by 2050. So we're seeing a significant increase in people aging and a significant increase in people aging with Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. So Bill, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Rob, I'm really excited and I'm honored to be asked to be on the show. I was really looking forward to it. Thanks. My pleasure. So tell me of that research I did, what are some of the numbers that stand out to you? So beyond what you said, which are uh, very important as well, one thing that always pops out in my head is that there are over 16 million unpaid family caregivers across the country. Mm-hmm. And that represents over $230 billion, with a B, of unpaid care. If they weren't doing that, and that's why some people call it unsung heroes, we can't afford it. We don't have the money. So they need as much support. They need as much tools. They need as much guidance to deal with their burden and deal with how they can not only care for their loved one, their family member, but also themselves so they don't burn out. That's a great, great point, and it's a staggering number. So, so tell me, you know, you've been doing this consulting work for how long now? Uh, about three years now. What is the most common thread that you see when you're consulting these families? What is, what's the word or the experience that you have that is the most common challenge they're facing around someone who's declining in their mental acuity? Excellent question. More often than not, what I see or hear the most is denial. And that could be either on the part of the person who is showing signs of dementia or the family members who don't know what it is or don't want to deal with it. And I'm going to plead guilty. We felt that way too. Mom was showing signs of dementia. It could be either side. Uh, It could be any member of the family. And some people won't be in denial and others will say they're fine. They're stressed. They're just getting older. Family are not going to be on the same page. Because either they're too busy or they don't know, they don't want to deal with it. And how do you deal with that? What, what's your normal way of kind of, you know, I don't want to say confronting that because that sounds too bold, but how do you confront that? My main advice is you don't want to have to be reacting or dealing with a problem like this in an emergency, in a crisis, like somebody falls and breaks a hip or they have a stroke or some other incident where you suddenly have to find care or move into a memory care facility. Uh, it's so much better to prepare, be proactive, and plan in advance. One of the things I like to say is if you're thinking that it's time for mom, dad, or whoever to be getting additional care, it is time. Right. That's the time to start planning. If you're start thinking, oh, we need to start looking at housing, it's probably time. 
And tell us, what are some of the kind of resources that you provide? What are the resources that these families need? You know, I'm sure they need to know about care facilities, for example, but what are some of the other things that are top of the services you provide? What I'm providing is I do a lot of, like most advisors, whether it's legal, financial, or otherwise, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to do a lot of listening and observing and uh, assessing and try to determine what are the biggest problems in the family and where do they need the most guidance and support. One of the areas besides in-home care or uh, housing, and there are so many options, more than there used to be, is the legal side. One of my first questions is going to be, do you have a durable power of attorney? Do you have the advanced directive, wills, trust, and pulse? Because if you don't, that's job one. Because if they don't, it's going to become more expensive and more complicated because you're getting into conservatorship and guardianship. And what happens in a case like that? That's an interesting question. What happens when someone doesn't have a power of attorney in place? And I'm sure you've come across scenarios where the person who needs care is already maybe past the point of being able to make those decisions for themselves. And then the family members are not able to get a power of attorney, I'm assuming. That's where it is becoming more expensive and more complicated. Yeah. They have gotten to the point of not being capable or competent to make a decision. One is a legal term. One is a medical term. Uh, They will not be able to sign a durable power of attorney, and they will need to seek guardianship and or conservatorship. One handles the legal side. The other side handles uh, the health and other uh, areas. So that's not exactly uh, the, uh, an added pressure that people want to have on their plate when they're already dealing with the difficulties of seeing a loved one deteriorating. Correct. And I was fortunate that my mother and my stepfather at that time did trust me and they did start giving me those documents so that I could uh, act in their behalf if and when needed. And it was becoming increasingly obvious that I would have to. So Bill, what was it about the experience with your mother that caused you to make the choice to now do this professionally? Great question. So when I started my journey with her almost 15 years ago, I felt the way a lot of caregivers do. I always felt alone, overwhelmed, uh, exhausted, uh, didn't know where all the resources were. There was barely an internet yet. So I didn't know where to turn. Basically, you had to do let your fingers do your walking and make use the phone book and contact uh, resources. Uh, whether it was legal, financial, whatever. I basically earned as I went. I didn't have somebody like me because I didn't exist and I needed somebody like me. And when I finished the journey after she passed away, at first I was doing support groups. After becoming a uh, participant, I became a facilitator, but I saw a greater and greater need. And I saw also a calling that I, I had my personal loss. I had my pain. There was a need and I basically turned it into my passion and what I like to call my encore career. As you mentioned, I used to work for the state of Oregon for a well-loved agency. And uh, now I'm in what I really love to do. And now I can help people with the resources that I needed to hear about the guidance, the advice and the support. So tell me what has been most gratifying for you around this experience and your latest uh, iteration career-wise? As you mentioned, I do support groups and working with clients and speaking, et cetera. When I am meeting with people and I see that they are also stressed 
and exhausted and feeling overwhelmed and alone like I did. And then they're finally seeing that there are ways to reduce that stress and there are answers and there is support out there. And there are other people going through the same thing that they almost have a a sense of relief. They sometimes laugh. They sometimes cry. They sometimes just slump over. They grab the tissue. And when they start saying, thank you, I wish I had met you sooner. I wish I had made that call or had uh, somebody had told me about these resources, including you, uh, and then start working them through that process. And they can see where they don't have to do it alone. And they can save money, save time, don't have to be spinning their wheels, be afraid to make one more phone call. And there's somebody who's going to listen to them because I've been where they've been. And I work with other people who do the same thing. So given, given some of the statistics we referred to at the beginning, what do you think are some of the key things we can do as a society that would treat our elderly population better? There's a phrase, and I'm going to paraphrase to, uh, with it, is if you've seen one case of Alzheimer's, you've seen, just, you've seen just one case. You can also say if you've seen one case of someone aging, seen one. Because even though there's common threads, every case is different, uh, not just because of their health or their cognitive ability or their family dynamics or other factors, other physical problems. Uh, every case is unique. The dynamics are different. The situation is different. And you have to treat them that way. The person is still there. They can still make decisions. It just takes them longer. The, the person is still inside. They just not, may not be in our reality. But you have to treat them with respect, validate what they're going through, uh, assume that they understand and hear everything you're saying. Keep them as engaged as possible. Uh, one of the terms I learned in giving a, a caregiving class, they call it and contented involvement, where they're not just sitting there watching TV or some other stimulus and activity or something that they love to do, but make each day meaningful in some way so that they have a reason for doing something besides sitting in a chair, uh, staring and wondering when somebody's going to call or when is the next meal, and repeating the questions like, what day is it, and when are we going to the doctor? Uh, They need more than that. They deserve more than that. These are our parents. These are our our family members. So how has this changed how you're looking at your own aging process? My own aging process? Well, I don't have the same risk factors as mom, fortunately, but I try to be as proactive about my my own health and my family's to be socially active, physically active, mentally active, watch what I eat. And I go out and talk to groups and I do uh, social media and blog newsletters that talks about exactly those things. Aging does not have to be sitting in a nursing home. The vast minority of people end up in the so-called nursing home that we think of from years ago. There are, they still exist. Some people need them with chronic illnesses and dementia, et cetera. But most people age in their own home or in the independent living or assisted living community. So if we keep them as engaged and active and 
good nutrition, et cetera, socially active, still seeing their families, still seeing their friends, they can have a good positive aging experience. And that's what I shoot for myself and kind of walk the talk, I guess. So uh, this seems like a good time for me to share with you the quote that I selected for you. So I'm going to read you a, a short quote and I just kind of want your, your response to it, your feedback. So here it is. The problems of aging present an opportunity to rethink our social and personal lives in order to ensure the dignity and welfare of each individual. I think it's related to what I was talking about just before. So it's a good segue. It's important that we keep in mind that we don't have to age in a nursing home, that we're sedentary, that we're not active, we're not engaging with our families and our friends, that whether it's in our own homes, and most people do age in their own homes, or in or a independent living or assisted living, and keep doing the things they've always enjoyed, whether it's a hobby, whether it's going to cultural events like uh, orchestra or plays, or still playing tennis or golf, uh, we can do those things. And we can travel, and it isn't until we're getting later and later in our lives, but we can still have a good quality of life into our 80s and 90s. You see it in your parents, uh, right across the street in independent living, most of them in their 80s, and most of them are, are enjoying their, their later years. The problem will be that with diseases or chronic illnesses like dementia and Parkinson's and some other things, as we age, and that this is the downside to life expectancies, is that we're aging with many of these diseases, and it they're very costly, and we don't have the money for it, not the way the system is set up right now. If we continue with the the baby boomers, the silver tsunami, and we have continuous cancers and Parkinson's and dementia, our medical system has become bankrupt. We need to find more sources for these and better and better prevention so we don't get sick in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I don't uh, often get political on this uh, broadcast, but I'm curious if your industry uh, has a particular uh, leaning towards how to handle the medical care system here in this country? Number one, as a volunteer and an advocate for the Alzheimer's Association, I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it's forefront in my mind, is like we've done with cardiovascular, with cancer, with AIDS and diabetes, we've found the research dollars and we found treatments and cures. The problem with Alzheimer's is is the sixth leading cause of death in the country. It's the most expensive and it's the only one in the top 10 with no known cure or treatment. So if we can, unless we can come up with more research dollars funded by the the Congress, uh, we're going to continue on this path. Fortunately, they are increasing each year the amount of research dollars, but that's where the the answer is going to be. Catching the disease early enough so we can diagnose it and we can provide a treatment and hopefully a cure. But it also goes back to, uh, and I don't want to get too political here, but too much of our healthcare system and the medical industry and the industry, besides being based on dollars, are sickness and surgery and uh, prescriptions, not on prevention and nutrition being proactive so people don't get as sick in the first place. I, I love that answer. I totally agree. So 
I want to kind of pivot into a couple areas of related to choices. So first, let's talk about you. So you've had multiple career paths, divergent careers. Talk to us a little bit about what, you know, what caused that to happen in your life and what was, what were, what would you say are some of the key learnings that you had over the years as you chose to be in different industries and do kind of very different things? You know, how did that help build you into who you are today and what you're doing today? Well, I think you touched upon it a little bit at the beginning, but uh, it's the old phrase about I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> uh, again, the common thread running throughout is helping people and customer service. My first industry, like you mentioned about uh, helping people do weddings, was in the hospitality industry. But then I moved into financial services, again, helping people. Uh, later on, uh, moving to uh, working for the state. It was just trying to find the right thing for me. But until I got to this last three or four years and started moving into helping people with uh, care for their families and provide support, did I find what I really wanted to do. Uh, the only other position that I think or career that I had that I felt very competent and I excelled at was as a banquet manager because I put together some wonderful meetings and parties things and conventions and everything else. Uh, but I got a little too old for that. <laughs> it's hard work and long hours. But this I can do for the rest of my life. Uh, it, it's not exhausting. It's not stressful for me. Yes, there's some gut-wrenching situations. There's challenging situations, helping families and hear about what they're going through. Uh, but when I, as you asked earlier, What's gratifying? It's helping them find those solutions, helping them find a way to take care of their loved ones and, again, themselves. And uh, thank you for that that answer. And I uh, totally can see the alignment that you've created for yourself and others. What are some of the critical choices you have to guide people on? You know, to to kind of navigate this process with a with a loved one. I mean, obviously, there's there's healthcare and whatnot, but I'm kind of talking more from a emotional and or decisions they have to make about how to approach a situation, handle a situation, have an uncomfortable or difficult dialogue with a loved one. How are you guiding them on some of these choices? And what are they? Good question, uh, Rob. Besides the aspect of denial that we talked about earlier, sometimes there's a sense that they can do it all themselves, that nobody else can do it as well or they don't want to give up control, or we can handle it and we don't need anybody else coming in here, et cetera. And getting the with dementia, for instance, to allow somebody into the house, a stranger, when they've always lived by themselves and they've never had any needed any help, getting it over that threshold is a tough one. But the problem is if, they're ta- or if we're talking about dementia, do you think they can make that decision themselves? No, they can't. The family does have to step in, whether they have power of attorney or getting into guardianship, et cetera. They need to make that decision. But there are ways to do that. You can induce, introduce it like, oh, we're going to bring in Mary. And she's a companion. Keep you company. Help you a little with the cooking, a little with the laundry. Maybe take your shopping and slowly introduce that aspect. So it's not like, okay, somebody's coming in and taking over the house. And usually that will help quite a bit. But you want to allow them, meaning the person with dementia, to be a part of the decision as much as possible. Don't just impose on them. One of the things I used to do with my mom was 
I would make suggestions. Mom, would you like a little help with this? Or what do you think about we do with this and I can help you with it? Oh, and most of the time she would say, yeah, I'd love that. But again, that was our relationship. Not all relationships are so easy. And frankly, that tactic that you just described, I mean, that works in life in general. Like as opposed to always imposing your will and, hey, we're doing this or I want this, whether it's work or relationship to say, hey, might I suggest, you know, that can sometimes just be more effective in life in general, not just given the topic we're talking about. So, Bill, I'm curious over the years that you've consulted with families around this, if you have kind of generated some some systems or some repeatable uh approaches to helping people make choices. So I'm not talking about the choices they have to make. We've covered that. I'm really talking about process of how to make choices, whether it's questions they need to ask themselves or, you know, any sort of exercises that you do with people, et cetera. That's a good question because usually, again, with each case being different, uh, different, uh, there are some common threads. Again, I ask a lot of questions and do a lot of answer, uh, listening and observing and assessing, as I mentioned earlier, it's a matter of going through the almost like a checklist. Okay, are you taking care of the legal aspects, the financial matters, healthcare, insurance, or uh, respite care, who's handling the the medications? Uh, How about uh, aspects of long distance caregiving? I mean, I did both because my mom was on the East Coast before I moved her out here. Uh, The issues of quitting driving. Usually, we would use a checklist besides the actual interview process, but a checklist of, okay, let's make sure that we cover all of these issues. And what are the main three or four most important things that you want to deal with, you want answers to, you want resources for, so that you will have less stress and you will feel less burden. What do you want taken off your plate? Because believe me, they have a full plate. I know how they felt. That's how uh, I felt overwhelmed at time. Here's another one. When I think about all the issues that I had to deal with, plus losing a home in hurricane and all the real estate and insurance, and I don't get started on my stepfamily, <laughs> is if, if I had tried to do everything at once, it's impossible. I basically had I used the analogy of triage, like the ER or the battlefield. Okay, this is the issue I have to take care of now. Everything else, you'll have to wait and just prioritize. And like I said, like triage, I think that's the most important thing. Because if anybody thinks that it's going to get any easier, it's not going to. It's only going to get harder. Right now is as easy as it's going to get. So you have to do it that way and then enlist the help of members, whether they're in the area or not. Because everybody can help in some way, whether they are in the area or not. It doesn't have to be the hands-on caregiving. It can be somebody handles the finances from a distance, or they order things on the internet. They do research, come and visit for a few days or a week and give respite to the primary caregiver, things like that. That's where the teamwork comes in. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, I love the metaphor of triage, not because that's a pleasant thing, but because most people are not equipped or, or used to dealing under that kind of pressure of a triage. And so having someone like you as a consultant and support and also thinking of it as like, okay, we got to do this first. That's the most urgent priority and doing things in, in order of priority, as opposed to getting overwhelmed with everything, I think is, mm-hmm. is a really good way to think of it. So Bill, you know, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show. 
And and second of all, I always give uh, my my guests a uh, an opportunity to just sort of promote their their entity. So why don't you just tell people your website and the name of your enterprise so they can check you out if they if they need your services. Be glad to. So again, the business is Cohen Caregiving Support Consultants LLC. The website is very similar, Cohen Caregiving Support dot com and my email is bill at cohen caregiving support.com i also have a facebook page which if i uh, can remember exactly what it says is something like bill's uh dementia support group for caregivers uh, i put a lot of uh, information out there including about my support groups my memory cafe uh my caregiver training uh, my various talks and and just topics of information of uh, uh, enlightenment and information for people so they can be better equipped for their own family now or in case it ever happens. Well, uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all this information. This is uh, given the numbers we talked about. It's important information that more and more of us are going to be dealing with in one way or another. Uh, my parents are you know in that age frame too, and so I'm you know this is pertinent to me specifically and useful. And I know that our listeners will find it uh, as such as well. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here and also just what you do and and the way that you give back. It it shines through in everything you say. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And thank you for help spread the message, Rob. You got it. Hope to see you again soon. Take care. Absolutely. This has been another episode of Clear Choices. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.